0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Center Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming some of the nation's leading oncologists and cancer specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Anish Chagpar welcomes Dr. Justin Blasberg. Dr. Chagpar is Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and Dr. Blasberg is Assistant Professor of Thoracic Surgery and Director of Robotic Thoracic Surgery, and they'll be discussing robotic surgery for lung cancer. Here's Dr. Chagpar.
1: Justin, maybe we'll start off by talking a little bit about lung cancer, how common it is um, and how it often presents.
2: Sure. So uh, lung cancer is uh, a fairly common uh, problem here in uh, Connecticut and also across the country, uh, most commonly in smokers. About 80 percent of our patients are smokers. Um, but a uh, Um, a a fair number of our patients come in with just a family history of lung cancer or exposure uh, to um, dust or particles at work, uh, or having come from countries where um, there uh, is uh, lung cancer indigenous to that area. Um, So there's about 175,000 cases per year in this country. um, And uh, we have a Pretty significant population in the New Haven area of not only smokers, but uh, non-smokers that we see uh, for all sorts of diseases, not only of the lungs, but also the esophagus and the mediastinum.
1: So lung cancer, I mean, when we talk about cancer on this show, we often talk about different modalities. We talk about surgery, we talk about radiation, we talk about chemotherapy. So how do patients get to you, and how many of those patients are surgically resectable?
2: So about 15 to 20 percent of patients diagnosed with lung cancer have early stage disease and would benefit from surgery. um, In the world of of lung cancer, um, there are three primary modalities for treatment. Um, Those would include some a regiment of chemotherapy, radiation, and also surgery would play a role. And based on the stage of disease that one has, um, we would consider surgery either uh, as a, the first modality to use or to consider chemotherapy or uh, and or radiation up front, followed by surgery based on how advanced disease is or where, there is, uh, a, where in the chest a particular tumor is located. So we work very closely with a multidisciplinary team. We meet weekly with uh, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, our pathologists, just in a multidisciplinary conference and discuss our uh, cancer cases, and try and figure out what is the best um, modality and in what order uh, to treat each of our respective patients. Every patient's a little bit different, but the goal is always, of course, to um, try and use the tools in our toolbox the most uh, in, in the most effective way, uh, and to get the best possible outcome.
1: So, of all of the patients who present, about fifteen to twenty percent will actually have surgery at some point. Correct. And so those tend to be the people who have early stage disease. Correct. And so when we think about lung cancer surgery, I mean, your lungs sit inside your chest. Your chest has got ribs. Oftentimes, it used to be in the past where people would get these massive thoracotomies and people would be taking out a whole lung or a lobe or a couple of lobes. But have things changed?
2: Things have changed, and um, there's a lot of good data to support smaller and smaller resections as we move along. Of course, there are different kinds of patient populations that we consider we have. um, uh, Even amongst early-stage patients, we have some patients that can tolerate bigger surgeries, some patients who can only tolerate smaller surgeries or not tolerate surgery at all. But the gold standard right now is to do what's called an anatomic resection where we take out a. a piece of lung that contains a lung cancer, and that lung tissue um, it follows, uh, we, we resect that lung tissue following the distribution of the artery, the vein, and the airway that sort of serves that, that uh, area of interest. And so most of the time, we're not taking out the entire lung on one side. We're taking out one of the lobes. On the right, there are three lobes. On the left, there are two. Um, but we're becoming even more sophisticated and in, 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 uh, identifying patients who might benefit from smaller resections, where we just take out segments of those lobes. Uh, And then in in patients who may or may not, uh, may be borderline for surgery, we can consider either just taking out the nodule itself or even radiating that area. So the the data has become far more sophisticated to let us know what, uh, to what extent resection or surgery is helpful, how much surgery is necessary, and what benefit we might be able to give a patient, even if we can't do sort of a traditional wide excision of that area.
1: And so as surgical techniques have evolved, we're making fewer and fewer big cuts. I mean, whether we talk about how we used to take out gallbladders and how we take out gallbladders now, or how I used to do an axillary node dissection on everybody, and now we do sentinel nodes. In thoracic surgery, things have evolved to be minimally invasive as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So um, more and more, we are using small incisions to do our operations. But um, Unlike some of the other uh, cancer specialties, we are actually doing the same operation that we were doing 10, 20, and 30 years ago. We have not moved away from um, the uh, the thought that going inside and taking or performing an anatomic resection is important, and then t- sampling or dissecting out all of the lymph nodes in the area is important. Um, we have not moved to the the model of a sentinel lymph node or to do selective lymph node sampling. We still um, dissect and remove as many lymph nodes as we can see, but um, to your point, uh, the incisions have gotten smaller and smaller, and as the skill set for minimally invasive surgery, both in a two-dimensional vision uh, format like video assisted thoracoscopic surgery or a three-dimensional vision like robotic surgery, we're able to um, perform about 90 to 95% of our uh, planned resections uh, in a minimally invasive way. Um, Those are for our earlier stage patients and as we become more and more sophisticated with not only the technology, but also our experience with those platforms, we're able to uh, do more and more, uh, we're able to perform more and more advanced procedures uh, with small incisions.
1: So a lot of people talk about robotic surgery, and it it always seems a little bit like science fiction, like you're using a robot to take out a cancer, and it's really high-tech and really um, uh, jazzy. Um, Tell us more about the actual procedure, and is there more of a benefit aside from this is really cool technology and everybody goes, wow, it's robotic?
2: So the robot <clears throat> Excuse me. So the robot is uh has um three-dimensional vision, which is unparalleled in our industry, in, in, in our um, section of, of the world in surgery. Um, we are able to visualize structures in the chest that we can see with a higher magnification, with better resolution than we can see with either small incisions or even with our eyeballs looking inside in a traditional thoracotomy. Um, the robot also allows for degrees of freedom to be able to move the instruments in a way that simulates open surgery as if my hand were moving. So unlike operating with uh, sort of telescopic instruments and two-dimensional vision we're operating with uh, much higher magnification much better resolution and also um, with instruments that simulate open hand motion so there are technical advantages for the surgeon um, to operate with a robot um, however the most important part of any of these operations is that we do a good cancer operation when we're in there and the goal of using a robot or the two-dimensional imaging or an open surgery is to take everything out uh, in an anatomic way to clear a patient of all disease. And so the robot is just one tool to get that done. Uh, Ultimately, the operation is the same.
1: And so is the pain the same afterwards and the post-op healing the same, the length of stay the same?
2: So I think the pain and the post-op healing, the length of stay, the quality of life in the short term, the return, the, the number of days to return to work, all of the metrics that we use to sort of, that we think of traditionally as an advantage of minimally invasive surgery um, are not that different between the robot and um, just other minimally invasive tools that we have. Um, the robot is makes the operation easier for the surgeon. Um, it doesn't necessarily change the outcome for the patient, although... Um, both the minimally invasive platform and uh, a standard minimally invasive, a traditional minimally invasive platform and the robot um, both get the patient out of the hospital faster. Um, and, uh, and patients uh, seem to complain of less discomfort in the chest wall when we use either of those modalities.
1: Versus open surgery. Correct. And so one would then think, well, you know, okay, so you can get a few more degrees of freedom. Uh, it certainly is a little bit easier than doing things thoracoscopically. But ultimately, it's pretty similar to thoracoscopic.
2: The outcomes should be the same, but the the ability to perform um, uh, advanced maneuvers in the chest, the ability to staple off blood vessels, to visualize angles, to be able to control not only the optics, but instruments and multiple arms at one time allows for a very efficient operation, um, and it allows for an extremely... Um, uh, thorough lymph node dissection in a way that I find to be more challenging with the standard or traditional minimally invasive approach. So for the surgeon, I think there are significant advantages to the robot if one is facile with the robot. At the same time, I, I do believe that a, a surgeon facile with uh, other minimally invasive techniques can, as- can accomplish the same goals with the same outcomes, but it's just one more tool that allows us to perform our job um, well and to give the patient the best possible outcome.
1: Is the surgery shorter when you use the robot?
2: The surgery is about the same. Um, it's There is a slightly longer period of um, of docking time preparation. The room and the, the staff needs to be trained in the robot, but once they become facile, not only in the setup, but also the procedure and the takedown um, of the operation, I think there's an insignificant increased length of the operation. That increased amount of time spent on setup and takedown um, is probably um, offset by the fact that the operation might be a little bit quicker with the robot so it's a I would say give or take it's about the same
1: and do you need special training in the robot uh, as opposed to other surgeons who may never have used a robot? Is there a learning curve?
2: So there is both There is both special training and a learning curve. So um, the um, company that makes the robot we currently use requires, uh, and the institution requires both a, um, an online training uh, session. They require you to go to a wet lab at, a, um, at one of the company's uh, various sites across the country. You then have to be credentialed by doing a certain number of cases with a surgeon who's already credentialed to do that number. Um, In some cases, you can be proctored or need to be proctored for additional additional number of cases in order to, to obtain a certain amount of experience to become comfortable. And then even after you've had that entire experience, it's encouraged um, for the, the new robotic surgeon to start with smaller cases to develop uh, an increased comfort with the platform, just like any other minimally invasive surgery or any other open procedure for that matter. As one does more and more and more, they become more comfortable um, and become more proficient with it. Um, the robot in particular, um, I think, requires a lot of of training before one is comfortable to just do it on their own. And um, and that is actually a, a requirement of the institution and of the company that makes it.
1: And so it sounds to me like y- you get very used to the robot and then it's very helpful and you find that it improves how you can do the operation, but you need that time to kind of get... Get trained on that equipment.
2: You do, and you know, um, even after you've been trained, to really get to be good at it, there you need to have a certain number of touches per week, per month, per you know, per year. You you, you certainly need a. Uh, there's certainly a minimum number of cases, and that number can be different based on, you know, how comfortable a surgeon is in terms of, you know, not being at the table, in terms of how good their staff is in the operating room. the, the There's the person who's at the table switching the instruments and taking care of the table work is just as important as the surgeon sitting at the console doing the operation. And, and it really requires... Um, Uh, excellent communication in the operating room and an experienced team so that um, things keep moving.
1: So, Justin, I think we might have lost some of our audience um, who might not understand this bit about being at the table versus being at the console. Can sure. you explain that to us a bit better?
2: Sure. So the the robot um, robotic surgery actually takes place in, in two locations. One is the patient who's on the traditional operating room table who is connected to robotic arms um, through ports that are placed. Um, and then the second is the patient, is the surgeon sitting at a, uh, at a console.
1: Both of which are in the operating room. Correct. And so we're going to pick up after we take a quick break for a medical minute to learn more about how exactly exactly this robotic surgery happens, what it costs, and what are the risks and benefits to the patient. Please stay tuned after this short break for a Medical Minute.
0: It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to removing multiple cores from the prostate for examination that may not be necessary. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Justin Blasberg. We're talking about robotic surgery for lung cancer, and for those of you who were with us before the break, we were just starting to unpack how exactly this happened. And it might have been a little bit disconcerting when Dr. Blasberg started talking about, well, there's the surgeon at a console, and then there's the patient on the operating room table, and these aren't necessarily in the same exact spot, although they're in the same room. So Justin, this may seem very scary for somebody who's lying on a table thinking, what? Like, so you've got the surgeon in the side of the room in a console, which sounds very much like a gaming console, but who's at the table? Who's looking after the patient?
2: So everyone in the room's taking care of the patient as as in any other surgery that we do. Um, the surgeon is not actually um, at the bedside but is in the room, and so the way the robot works, the surgeon's sitting in a chair. He's looking into a sort of like a gaming console. There's um um and a place where he places his head, and that uh and looks into um, this machine, and that gives him the option, the ability to see the structures inside the patient uh, in three dimensions. And then he has controllers in front of him where he uses his hands to operate and manipulate the various arms of the robot that that have been placed in the position where they need to be placed. The only difference between a robot and a traditional minimally invasive surgery is that the surgeon himself is not actually at the table operating with those instruments. Those instruments are controlled th- um, by the robot through the console so that the surgeon's hands are actually moving the instruments, but just not physically moving the instruments. He's moving the instruments through the console. Um, so it's... it's. Um, It's not that different than a traditional minimally invasive surgery, but um, it does require a specialized team. That team consists not only of the surgeon at the console, but also of an assistant at the table who helps uh, not to control the arms, but to swap out instruments that may be necessary to position instruments in the appropriate uh, way uh, and to communicate with the surgeon as to what they see or uh, don't see or what they're uh, comfortable with or um, uh, to to keep the operation moving along. Uh, Communication amongst that team is. Is critical.
1: And so all of us are visualizing the patient there with these tiny little incisions um, and how exactly do you, I mean you were very specific before the break about doing an anatomic resection, like taking out the lobe of the lung if you need to or a wedge or a segment, but but in an anatomic space and not uh, cutting corners in terms of the operation itself, how do you actually physically take out what could be a a large segment of tissue through a tiny incision?
2: the lung is, is like a sponge and it's easily compressed. So when it's inflated, the lungs, uh, you know, one would think that the lung is actually a, a large structure, but when deflated, a lot of lung can actually fit through a small hole. And actually even a tumor itself will compress and fit through um, a smaller hole in the chest wall so that we're able to get this done and finish an operation even with small incisions. Um, the, the A procedure is typically carried out by identifying the structures that go to the area around the tumor. So that the, there's always an artery artery, a vein, and an airway that serve an area, an anatomic area. And so we identify those. And on the right side, there are three lobes. On the left side, there are uh, two lobes. And so based on where a person has a, a lung cancer, we are able to isolate that artery, that vein, and that Airway to to use the robot or minimally other minimally invasive tools to um, isolate those vessels in that airway and then to divide them with you know uh, very sophisticated surgical staplers and then to remove that segment of the lung tissue and to and 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 then to place it inside of a specimen bag and take it out through a small incision so that the patient is able to benefit from a surgery that doesn't make big cuts like a traditional thoracotomy that doesn't divide a lot of muscle or cause a lot of pain like a traditional thoracotomy but we're still able to Operate on even fairly large tumors. Uh, We we've uh, we're able to um, do cases where patients have tumors up to five or seven centimeters and take them out through small incisions. Um, The bigger the tumor, the the more difficult an operation is because of the amount of manipulation that's required. Um, The lung, like I said, is a sponge, but when there's a solid mass inside of it, it's um, it's definitely more difficult to manipulate. Um, But as we become more experienced with the robot, we uh, are expanding our indications and um, and we're able to use use that tool to the benefit of patients with even more advanced disease.
1: So does every hospital have a robot uh, that that can be used for this?
2: Not everyone has a robot, and not everyone, um, even hospitals that have a robot don't necessarily use it for thoracic surgery. Um, the robot um, was more popular in its day um, with the with the, uh, uh, the urology surgeons, um, and um, it's been um, used a lot in other oncology disciplines. Um, it's being used more and more in thoracic surgery because of the benefit of not only the visualization, but also the range of motion, degrees of freedom of those instruments in in a confined space. Um, so, as um, I think in future years, the robot will see um, use in applications where uh, it wasn't originally designed. Um, it was not designed as a thoracic tool, but it is uh, used uh, in some institutions exclusively for all thoracic surgery, at least for uh, early stage patients. Hmm.
1: And so, you know, when we think about new technology, I think one of the things that everybody is very sensitive to is risk and benefit. Um, And so you've talked a little bit about the benefit for the surgeon, being able to see things uh, better than you might even be able to see them with your naked eye, Uh, being able to move the instruments uh, better than you would with traditional uh, laparoscopic or thoracoscopic instruments, but not really a huge benefit in terms of the patient over regular thoracic, thoracoscopic, uh, minimally invasive techniques. And so given that, is there an additional cost to the patient that might be a risk as well?
2: Typically, there's not a cost to the patient. The patient doesn't, uh, or their insurance, doesn't reimburse the hospital more for a robotic case than they do a VATS case or a a thoracoscopic case. Um, To the patient, there isn't a um, a difference in cost. Um, That cost is, most of the time, that cost is incurred by the hospital itself in the purchase of the equipment, uh, in the maintenance of the machine, and in the disposables, meaning the instruments that have a limited lifespan. Unlike traditional open instruments, which are typically of stainless steel there are minimal disposables in the robot in the robotic platform there are more disposables all of the instruments that um, the robot uses to carry out the surgery have a limited lifespan sometimes it's 10 uses or 20 uses or whatever that might be there are more parts because it's far more sophisticated more moving parts um, there are more pieces that have to be replaced on an, on a on a on a uh, a regular basis. That cost is not incurred by the patient um, and in fact, uh, a lot of times I think the uh, the the hospital finds the robotic platform to be a desirable um, tool to have in its armamentarium and um, because it is used as, a, uh, as a, um, a way of recruiting or of capturing uh, a larger patient population that are interested in that kind of platform. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it, it is never a, an expense to the patient. Um, it is always uh, of benefit to the patient without incurring uh, any significant uh, risk compared to other minimally invasive surgery.
1: And so presumably if there is a hospital that has a robot, then it's a sunk cost for the the mainstay of the capital of the equipment. And so they want to use it in a variety of platforms, not just – in urology and gynecology, but in thoracics and other things,
2: and that's how we use our robotic uh, systems here. We um, we do share the time. We have block time, meaning we have a dedicated time during the week that we uh, do those cases with a dedicated team. And um, although that sounds somewhat restrictive, it's actually um, a better system to have block time because we need a dedicated robotic staff, and you know it's um, it's helpful as a surgeon. It's also helpful uh, for the patients uh, to have. Uh, operative staff, anesthesia, and, and uh, nursing that is familiar with that platform every single day. Even if it's urology one day, GYN on another day, and thoracic surgery uh, on a Wednesday, we are uh, we benefit from having a team that's very experienced in that in that platform.
1: And so, how do you decide if if there's patients who come to you whether to do things through VATS or whether to do things through a robot, or is it just Gee, is there space on that particular day, or is it that there are particular characteristics that you look for that might make a patient more amenable to one or the other?
2: So... um we have a of there are a variety of scenarios. We do have a certain number of patients who come to our clinic or our offices and they want robotic surgery. They've heard about it. They have a friend who had robotic surgery. They've seen it on the internet. They've heard that this is um, uh, something that's great and they want to know more about it. So a certain percentage of our um asks for robotic surgery. Um, Aside from that population, we generally offer a minimally invasive surgery to all of our patients that can that would be a candidate. Um, there are very few patients that have early stage disease, so smaller tumors without lymph node involvement or with minimal lymph node involvement that we... Um, we offer all of those patients some amount of, some kind of minimally invasive surgery. And in those cases, I always present to the patient the options of robotic surgery, minimally invasive surgery, and then also as a plan B, in case we have to convert our cases, in case we run into trouble, in case the patient has Uh, newly found uh, problems during the operating room that we always plan for an open incision just in case. Um, I would say once patients are presented with minimally invasive or thoracoscopic surgery versus robotics, about 30 to 50% are very interested in a robotic operation because they don't necessarily um, care, if there's a benefit to them, they, they like to know that their surgeon is actually, that there's a potential benefit um, to, to the surgeon himself or herself in terms of um, being able to carry out the operation. That's not to say that uh, thoracoscopic surgery isn't, uh, isn't also uh, able to accomplish the same goals in the same hands, um, but patients generally like the idea of, of being able to utilize a technology which makes the surgery a little bit easier.
1: And so, you know, one of the things you mentioned is always talking to patients about conversion to open if there's an issue. So how often is it that there's an issue with robotic surgery, and how quickly can you get from the console to the bedside? In an emergency,
2: so it's that's another uh, it's another great reason to have an experienced team because occasionally uh, in all surgery, no matter how big or small the incisions, and no matter how small or big um, the the procedure, we always plan for a vascular emergency, an airway emergency. Those are those are the things that we have to deal with uh, in our business in our line of work. So uh, obviously, the surgeon's not at the table, and a robot is docked to the patient, meaning robot is robotic arms ha- are holding instruments that are inside the patient. And so in an emergency, it's really important to be able to get to the table, to be able to remove the robot, and to be able to make an incision, uh, potentially to save a patient's life if necessary. Um, and so the operating room staff is is trained, uh, and, and this kind of conversation happens before every single case. We talk about scenarios, emergency scenarios. We talk about... Um, Maneuvers that would be necessary to save a patient's life. Uh, we talk about um, how to remove the robot um, and get it out of the way so that the surgeon and assistant can um, perform an open procedure if necessary. And um, because of you know the the that in some cases time is a, is is of the essence. Um, that's an important conversation to have that we have uh, before every single case.
1: So how often is that? ever utilized?
2: It's pretty rare. Um, vascular injuries in general, uh, in, in minimally invasive surgery, in our hands, are um, there's there's been no difference between minimally invasive thoracoscopic surgery or robotic surgery in terms of the risk of conversion, the percentage of conversions, the outcomes after conversion. Uh, we feel um, pretty comfortable. Uh, about 90 to 95% of the time when we start a minimally invasive procedure, we, we are able to finish it with small incisions. Um, it is rare to have a vascular injury, but when it happens, it's important to recognize it, to treat it, to, to be on top of it. And so we um, take the necessary precautions before every single case um, in the event there is a vascular emergency that we're prepared.
1: And so it sounds to me like, you know, this is really a technique that uh, you'll offer patients. Almost everybody will be offered a minimally invasive approach. Are there any patients in whom you start and you think think even before you get to the operating room, this is a patient who needs an open procedure.
2: We talk about that before every case with every patient. We talk about the scenarios for conversion or the scenarios where we would have a lower threshold to make an open uh, to make an open incision. So patients are prepared; um, um, they're prepared psychologically. They're prepared in terms of their pain management that they'll need uh, after surgery, or they're prepared about the activity level that we expect from them after surgery um, for recovering from an open procedure. So we always talk about that scenario afterwards. Um, For the most part, when we think that we can start a a minimally invasive procedure, we're able to finish it minimally invasive. But occasionally, um, some patients with advanced disease do require bigger incisions, uh, and we still feel confident we're able to get them a good outcome that way.
0: Dr. Justin Blasberg is Assistant Professor of Thoracic Surgery and Director of Robotic Thoracic Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions for the doctors, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the progress being made in the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.